Hey, what's going on, guys? It's Michael from the Honest Youth Pastor back again for part two of the Mark Driscoll Sermon Review. Today, we're going to be looking at the second half of the sermon review we started last week. If you did not watch the one last week and you're interested in what we've done up to this point, that link will be in the description. Also, if you want to watch this entire sermon without my commentary at all, that link will also be in the sermon review. And if you want to support what we're doing here with these sermon reviews, all of those links will be in the description as well. So let's get into this in case you are new to this entire sermon review idea. And let me explain it before we jump into kind of the second half of Mark Driscoll's sermon. So each week we uh, go through and look at a variety of different pastors, a variety of different sermons, and we go through and say, hey, what's good here? What's bad here? And we do so for the purpose of hopefully equipping you with tools in order to help discern uh, as you listen to whoever you listen to, whether it be videos online or the pastors of various churches you may visit or attend. The idea here is that we hear a lot of sermons, a lot of people standing up, declaring the word of God, saying that it is the word of God. But oftentimes what we find that there's there's parts in those sermons that are concerning. They either don't actually reflect what the text says or the text is twisted to say something it doesn't say. And then on in other instances, we actually see pastors using text incredibly well, actually opening up the text, the context, the words, so we understand what the scripture meant, uh, not only to the original audience, but what it means now to us as believers, as we live out this gospel reality, God's kingdom in the already not yet. So what we're looking for in these sermon reviews is not to say, hey, this pastor's really good, or this pastor's really bad. We're looking and saying, hey, what are the red flags here? What are the good things? What can we take away? What should we be concerned about? So that we can take that through a variety of different sermons that we're going to inevitably listen to and watch uh, in our lifetime. So with that being said, let's go ahead and jump into the second half of Mark Driscoll's sermon. Now, I want to start with before we get into it, there's two things I want to cover here. One, we obviously want to cover the second half of the sermon, what we're looking at, uh, what he set up to this point, and then kind of how it continues. And the second part, uh, as I alluded to in part one, is I want to kind of look at uh, Mark Driscoll as a pastor. There's a lot of people that have uh, uh, talked about him because of the Mars Hill thing. Uh, there's an entire podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, that's concerning Mark Driscoll. Uh, there's a lot of articles out there as well talking about him. And what I want to do is kind of, uh, we're not going to get all the way through the sermon, but I want to get a good portion through part two here. And then at the end, kind of kind of reconcile those and say, okay, well, what does this mean then? When we've looked at this sermon and then uh, all these articles and all this information we have, uh, what does this mean? So let's get into it. Second half up to this point. Uh, Mark, if you if you don't want to go back and watch the part one, that's fine, obviously. But up to this point, he's talked about, uh, uh, he's given a lot of analogies, a lot of things about stress and, t uh, and how it affects us, uh, not necessarily as believers, just as humans. Um, and there's been a lot of anecdotal evidence in regards to uh, more, more sociology, more psychology uh, that he's given up to this point. And up to this point in the sermon, 23 minutes in, we really haven't looked at the text that much. We haven't really looked at any of the context of the text, the background of the text. Um, and we really haven't focused really at all on the text. He spent about 23 minutes unpacking a bunch of um, studies. So he doesn't reference any, but a lot of things he's read, a lot of things he understands about the human psyche and about sociology. 
Um, and so what I said to kind of catch you up if you haven't watched the first one is that it's not really been incredibly, it's been basically a TED talk up to this point. Not a lot of Bible. There's a little sprinkling there underneath, um, but a lot more just information dumping essentially up to this point. So let's see if it takes a turn here in the second half of the sermon uh, to see if maybe we get back to the text, what that looks like, what that means. So let's go. We're going to actually start at the 23 minute mark, which is a little farther back than we ended last time, but just so we can kind of catch up with his line of thought. Let's go. And they feel good until they get the bill and then they got credit card debt. And now all of a sudden they've got a new trial of debt in addition to the trial that they spent money trying to deal with. This is the world we live in. Just think, so on social media, there are words and there are images. People click on the images far more frequently than they do the words. And what we're trying to figure out is what do they have? Now we get to see, oh, look at their house. Oh my gosh, that's it. Oh, look at their car. Look at their vacation. Look at their kids. They're, they have booger-free kids. Oh my gosh, you know. How do you do booger-free kids with a white rug? You know, like that's a crazy house. Now all of a sudden, there are things we didn't even know about that we're covetous of. And we start spending money we don't have to buy things we don't need to impress people we don't know. Okay, real quick, I do want to stop it real fast because of the last video, and I do want to make a distinction here with these sermon reviews in case you are new here or in case maybe I've not said this in a while in the videos. Um, somebody made a comment on the last video about, well, look at his set. Look at all the stuff up there. Clearly, this isn't a biblical church. Um, there's two things here that we really want to differentiate here with the, within doing these sermon reviews. Uh, one is methodology, and the second is, is exegetical work. Um, there are going to be methods in which a church maybe runs that we have differences on. Now, some of those differences are going to be quite significant, right? So there's going to be churches, for example, um, I think we're going to do a sermon review of one of these churches here soon that like they play secular music during their worship time to kind of connect with people and get them pumped up. Like there's obviously sort of things like that are are more than just methodological methodological differences. <laughs> They're actually like core differences in how the church should operate. Now, I think that you you could argue that having a bunch of stuff on stage like this, a bunch of stuff that uh, is distracting, could hinder worship. But I think there is this point where we got to go. Okay, well, let's focus on the message part of it rather than all of the other stuff. To be true, though, there will be people that won't go to this church or churches like it because of the things on the stage. They are going to find it distracting. They are going to find it disrespectful. So as pastors and, um, and, and leaders of churches, we do have to be cognizant of that. Like, is it worth it to do that in order to, you know, maybe connect with people? Or is it one of those things where we have where we could say, like, you know, we don't need all of this. It's just extra um, but it's a conversation worth having, but I don't think it's, it's a whole different level than exegetical work and saying, is this person looking at the text rightly? Um, and we have to differentiate that because sometimes we will write somebody off based upon how their stage looks or how they're dressed, um, and not look at the actual content of what they're saying. So that, I, I just want to point that out. I saw that comment on the last video and I thought, well, yes and no. Um, I'm not, I don't like that there's a whole bunch of like decorations or props or whatever you want to call them on stage. It's not going to make me completely ignore what the person's saying. If somebody's saying something biblical and they're doing a really good job of bringing out the text, I'm going to have that way heavier. Um, we just have to be cognizant of that as we're processing 
um, when people speak. Like it's methodology is one thing as far as delivery, how the stage looks, the type of worship music there is. And then there's um, exegetical work, which is like the content of the sermon. Now, sometimes those do cross over. We have to, again, be discerning and when we're paying attention to that sort of stuff. But um, anyway, let's keep going. True or false? <laughs> One guy didn't hear it. He was shopping. He's like, I don't know what he's talking about. So, okay. so all that to say, what he's talking about here are the rich and the poor. He's talking about the godly poor, and then he's talking about the rich, and the commentators are split 50-50, whether it's godly or ungodly rich. But here's the problem when it comes to our wealth, possessions, and finances. I do need to stop. If you weren't here uh, last time, there was a breakdown chart that he had up that he's going to talk about godly rich, ungodly rich, uh, ungodly poor, godly poor. And he's about to go into breaking this down. Now, in the previous uh, review, part one, I did talk about where I don't think this is incredibly helpful. It does not seem to be James's main point in the text. It doesn't even seem to be really a, um, a huge point. But what Mark's going to do here is really bring this out um, and, and kind of explore it. So whether you agree that it's a big point or not in the scripture, Mark here is going to do that. And he's going to bring it out and make it a thing and then kind of go through it and work through it. Now, pay attention to what he says. And because we need to look at the, we need to be aware of the lenses that we're bringing to scripture because there's going to be lenses, cultural lenses, uh, political lenses, um, historical lenses that we're bringing um, that if we're not aware of, we are going to let help us, it's, we're going to allow that to interpret scripture for us rather than actually looking um, at scripture as best we can without all the things that we're seeing it through. Um, so as he talks here, just kind of pay attention to that. And after he gets done with kind of walking through, this is going to be long. I'll just let you know that he is going to talk for a while here, but I want you to kind of connect all the dots. And then on the backside of that, we will talk about them. We tend to think culturally, not biblically. So we think in two categories, not four. I want to show you the four biblical categories. And if you are younger, went to public school and or a university, you need to pay careful attention because you've been lied to and brainwashed. Okay, here are the four categories. Godly poor, godly rich, ungodly poor, ungodly rich. Now what happens in our culture, the economic discussion politically is largely dominated by Marxism. Marxism is atheistic and godless. It is not biblical in any sense of the word. It manifests itself in communism and socialism and other kinds of evils that end with ism. And the result is that you tend to see only two categories, the oppressor and the oppressed. The oppressor and the oppressed. So everything is in those categories. I'll give you an example. So right now, if you're not vaccinated, you are an oppressor. And if you are vaccinated, you're oppressed. So these categories keep getting applied to everything. The way it gets applied economically, the rich are the oppressor, the poor are the oppressed. Therefore, in the name of justice, we vote for politicians who take from the rich, give to the poor, reallocate the wealth in the name of justice. This is the world we live in. So if you are on the political left, you are progressive, you are blue, you are woke, you think CNN is okay. Okay? Okay. First of all, how did you get here? That's uh, for, like, like, oh, to change your mind. Okay, that's why. So if you are in that camp or category, these are the categories you tend to think of. Put it back up. You think of category three, 
uh, excuse me, category one and category four. Okay, so I do want to stop real quick. So just having the idea. So there's a couple things here that I think are worth kind of processing through just as observational points. The first being, clearly James didn't have any idea what Marxism was. Marxism came far, far after James's time. Um, now, he would have had like lenses that he's looking at the world through, clearly, but Marxism wasn't one of them. Uh, not that Mark is saying that this is the kind of thing James would have had aware of. He's just saying that that's how in our current culture things are seen and breaks it down a little bit. Now, he's going to go into that more, so I don't want to go too far, but he's about to kind of go in that a little bit more. The other observation that I want to make is that um, there are lines, especially right now within the church and politics in which some you have churches that are very like, I mean, if you want to use the language of blue and red, you can, because I think that's a pretty fair definition of what's happening. You have churches that are really, really red, as in Republican, and then you have churches that are really, really blue, which is Democrat. And the mix between them is non-existent primarily. You can see that especially here, right? So he mentions uh, progressives, CNN, uh, red, blue, like he, these are all keywords that the audience that he's talking to are going to recognize. They're keywords that you probably recognize. And then when he went, he mentioned CNN is kind of all right, like the entire congregation, well, not the entire congregation, but enough of the congregation booze that you, it's an audible thing that gets picked up at least on the stage mics or on his mic, right? So the reason this is uh, one, an observation and two, I would say problematic uh, because if you are there, if you are searching, if you, for whatever reason, have stumbled into Trinity Church that Sunday morning and you're looking for Jesus, you're, you're asking the question, is Jesus real? Like, how do I know anything about Christianity? And you happen to be coming from a background that is more progressive, that is very liberal. That's how you grew up. That's your understanding of the world. Those are the lenses that you're operating with, Right. And you wander into this church and you hear what you just heard, you're automatically going to feel like, okay, well, this is clearly not the church I need to be in because no one here um, likes me, probably, right? If they knew my political views, if they knew my uh, my background, if they knew all of this, they, they're, they're, they're more likely to convert me to conservatism or uh, throw me out because of my views. That's like, that's the process that's going through your mind. Now, again, there are things that the church needs to stand firm on, right? Politics, specifically red politics, conservative politics, is something that I think we do need to differentiate in the church. Because, again, if you have somebody walk in that's genuinely looking for Christ and they come across and just hear this, this is what's going to stick more with them was the booing and the CNN and the red-blue language. Um, that's problematic, right? That is something that Pastors need to be aware of that it is probably a thing in your church. If you're a pastor, your church is going to lean one way or the other. But as a pastor, right, of people that are that are supposed to be leading them and walking them through the process of sanctification, hopefully through the teaching and discipleship, um, this is one of the things that we go, look, That's this is not our primary identity, right? Our primary identity isn't that we hate CNN. Our primary identity isn't that we hate Fox News. Like the, the point is, this is not our primary identity. Our primary identity is in Jesus. Um, so th that's problematic for me for a reason. Um, clearly, I think that it's um, it, it's it's just not a, uh, an atmosphere that is set um, in a way that is saying, hey, 
Jesus wants to change you. Jesus, like you have sin. Jesus is the savior. Let's talk about that guy. Um, the tone that's set right now, walking into his point here is that blue, bad, red, good. And that's not helpful. I don't think for the gospel, there's a lot of discussion that can be had there. Um, but I don't think that's, it's not setting up its point very well. So here we go. He's going to go into this a little bit about Marxism more, and then we'll talk about it. The poor people are good. The rich people are bad. The rich people have set up a system that oppresses the poor people, takes advantage of the poor people, and it's a win-lose shell game. All people who are rich are ungodly. People who are poor are godly or good. Justice is attacking the rich and then giving it to the poor. If you are on the right, if you are more traditional or conservative, if you watch Fox News and agree, if you are someone who is red on the political spectrum, you see it differently. Amen, Amen. okay. Um, somebody just came out of the closet right here in the third row. All right, and, and that would be, you tend to think more in terms of category two and four. Two and three, rather. Man, I'm having a hard time with numbers. So um, it would be that the, the rich people, they're, they're godly or they're good. They started companies, they took risks, they work hard, they've built a company, they're employing people, they're creating positive economic momentum, they're paying their taxes. These people who are business owners, these are good people. And then there's some poor people who are lazy, they're drunk, they're having kids they have no intent of providing for, they're they're taking advantage of the government, they're rigging the system, and they're acting like victims, and the truth is they're villains. Okay, so, okay. All right, so what we're gonna do now, we're gonna put turnbuckles in and just, no. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna think biblically, not culturally. Okay, so he set it up where um, up to this point, right, the idea is that he, he's shown where the left would view things, where the right would view things. And we're about to go into a pretty interesting point here, but I think it's, it's interesting to note that before this, we've kind of got the cultural context of the congregation in regards to political views, uh, in regards to leanings, very clear leanings um, of where his congregation sits based upon the categories that he just said and basically where he sits like he's not he's not he's not ambivalent to the situation it's very clear where he sits on this topic um so let's see where we take so he's identified where if you are left you identify with these two categories if you're right you would identify with these two categories and then he set the stage here to say okay well let's not think culturally lynn let's think biblically let's see where he takes it so there are four categories, not two. So I want you to think like God thinks about your money, wealth, and possessions. So are there people in the Bible who are godly and poor? Hey, and the way you know someone is godly when it comes to their wealth, how do they get it? What do they do with it? Well, they work hard, they save, they invest, they give an inheritance to their kids. And then the people who receive the wealth, they, are, they tithe to the Lord generously, they, they pay their bills, they pay their taxes, they pay their employees. Godliness or goodness, it's how you receive and how you distribute the wealth that you obtain. James, who writes this, his family was category one. It was godly and poor. They were poor, they're a rural family, married as teenagers, blue collar, they go to the temple, they can't offer the normal sacrifice, they gotta offer the special sacrifice that was designated for the poor. There are people who are poor. There's a widow, all she's got is one coin and she gives it to the Lord. She's poor, but she's godly. 
There are people who are poor and they are godly. In addition, um, the godly rich. Are there people in the Bible that are godly and loaded? There are. There's a guy named Abraham. We're gonna study Genesis next year. God gives him incredible abundance. At the end of that same book, there's a guy named Joseph. He becomes the CFO of the nation of Egypt, which is the largest economy on planet earth. And he is a godly guy filled with the Holy Spirit and God put him in a position to distribute massive wealth assets. Similarly, there's a guy named Nehemiah. He has this similar sort of role in the Old Testament. So there are some people, they're godly and they are rich. Are there people who are poor, but it's because they're ungodly? Yes. Proverbs talks a lot about these people. It calls them sluggards. You ever seen a slug? They're, they're not really motivated. You look at a slug, you go away for an hour, you come back, there it is. <laughs> Hasn't, not a lot of ambition, right? You can threaten the slug, you can yell at the slug, you can scare the slug, slug's not moving. Some people are sluggards, that means they're slug-like. They, you just can't move them. They're not gonna work, they're, there's no sense of urgency, there's no sense of ambition. Proverbs talks about people too who just don't like to work or they get a little money and then they try a get rich quick scheme. They're always trying to find a shortcut and there isn't one. That's why your house is smaller than the casino. The casino wins every time. These are people who they're not thinking logically or acting biblically, so they're suffering financially. Not everybody who's poor is a victim. I grew up in a neighborhood. My family were uh, godly poor. My dad was a construction worker, hung drywall to feed five kids. Okay, so he does at least differentiate. And this is one of the things that I wanted you to see at least. Um, and this is where it's kind of weird for me because what he does is he actually does differentiate and say, look, these, are, these aren't, they're not just two basic categories, right? So it's not just ungodly rich, godly poor. It's not just godly uh, poor, ungodly rich. Like it's not those four things. And he goes through and gives some rough demonstration of how throughout the scriptures we see people in every one of these categories. The odd thing for me when I'm watching this then is saying like, why before then did you make it such a black and white issue in which, or in this case, I guess, red and blue issue um, and didn't like quell that whenever it was clearly obvious that, that your congregation leads a certain way, right? So as a pastor, the idea here is if I'm trying to demonstrate that there aren't just two categories, there's actually these four categories. Again, not that James even talks about this, but if we're going to go there, um, if my point is to demonstrate how all four of these are the way that people operate in the world, right? Why would I not then, at least when people are like cheering, they're like, yeah, go red or boo blue, right? Why am I not saying, hey, hold on though. We're not thinking the right way. So I know that you're thinking this way. These are the way you, you view the world. But actually, a biblical way to view it is to say, hey, all of these are accurate categories. All of these are the way that people operate. That's not what he does, though. Like, he does mention, let's not think culturally, but let's think biblically. But at the same time, sort of promotes this idea that it's okay to view this in a red-blue way. 
which this is where it's confusing for me. Like he doesn't, he does at least address, he does say there's four categories, not two, but he never sort of condemns the idea of looking at it in a red or blue way. Like he never says, hey, you're both wrong. This is not the way you should view it. You should actually view it in a biblical way. So this is where it's a little confusing because I think breaking it down that way, if we're gonna go there, is helpful to demonstrate that, hey, you have a certain set of lenses and you have a certain set of lenses and that's problematic because that's not the way that the Bible is viewing this situation. So take those lenses off and view things in a biblical way then. Like that would have been very easy to say. Um, but now we come away with this idea that, oh, okay, there's four, but but my way is pretty right. Like that's, that's the sense I get here, which is really strange. But anyway, so let's keep going. Um, he's going to then kind of go into some examples of what this looks like practically in, in the here and now. Until he broke his back, my parents were generous. They didn't have much, but they were very generous. But also in my neighborhood, there were a ton of people who were ungodly and poor. Uh, they wouldn't get married because then they wouldn't get the benefits from the government. So they're just living and sleeping together. There were some people in my neighborhood that had scams and schemes to sue companies and to fraudulently take from the government. I mean, just all kinds of hustling. And then true or false, there are some people who are rich, but they're just ungodly. There's a, there's a lot of those in the Bible. There are political leaders like Pharaoh in Egypt, Nebuchadnezzar and Belteshazzar in Babylon. There are uh, like Herod in the Roman empire. They're loaded. They live in huge, huge, huge estates. They've got harems, they've got servants, uh, they've got horses, but it's like North Korea. Like they're, they're really winning, everybody else is losing. It's ungodly. There's a guy in the New Testament, his name is the rich young ruler. And here he's got Jesus as savior and he's got a lot of stuff. So he's torn between his stuff and his savior. And he's wondering, is there a way to do both? To love and worship your stuff and also have Jesus as your savior. So the rich young ruler goes to Jesus. He's like, okay, so I got a lot of stuff and I'd also like you to be my savior. Can we do both? And Jesus is like, no, you need to pick your priority, either your stuff or your savior. And it says that he left very sad because he really liked his stuff. And so what he's talking about here, James is the rich and the poor. And then the question is, what kind of home did James grow up in? Godly poor. Question for you, what kind of home did you grow up in? And it tends to inform your politics. In addition, what kind of person are you? So here's a question. Jesus Christ, rich or poor? Yes. Okay, yes. So Jesus started in heaven. Was he rich or poor? Let me tell you this, heaven's nice. Heaven's super, like, like right now, people in heaven are like, Scottsdale's a dump. Okay, that's what they're thinking. Paradise Valley ain't. <laughs> Paradise. So heaven's nice. Jesus. Okay, so it's important, and we've talked about this in the first part of this sermon review, to pay attention to what is actually happening. Like, are we looking at the scripture and are we drawing out the truth of the scripture? Are we, are we saying, okay, well, who is this written to? Um, why was it written to them? Um, what would have they have heard? Like what would have been the immediate effect on them when they heard it? And then what does that mean for us? Right? This is the idea. Like we can stick in a thousand stories or we can die, like do a deep dive on certain things 
Uh, and that's, I guess, helpful. But is it actually bringing out the scripture, right? So, I mean, just to draw you back <laughs> to, to the actual Bible here. The verses that he is talking about, or the verses we've been are supposed to be talking about, are specifically James chapter 1. Uh, the ones we're stuck on right now are uh, verses 9 through 11. And this is what it says. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he shall pass away. For the sun rises and scorches the heat and withers the grass. Its flower fails and its beauty perishes. So will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And then it goes on. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised which God has promised to those who love him. And that he's going to keep going, right? This is within James chapter 1, where he's talking about the fact that trials will come. Trials come to produce steadfastness in us. And sometimes we don't know how to deal with them. And so if we don't have wisdom on how to deal with them, we should ask God how to deal with them. And when he, when we, we should be steadfast in those decisions, because we have faith in who God is. And whether we're rich or we're poor, it doesn't matter because we can boast in the fact that we have the Lord as our Savior and he is, our, he is the one that allows us to be steadfast. So I don't know like what all of this fluff is here. Like what, how, like I get that, like so Mark, if you listened at least in the past and maybe apparently even now, like he has, he, he's, he's a very, or he seems to be, I don't know, I don't, he didn't, have any sources. I'm just going to take him at his word here. He seems to be very informed about what's happening politically and socially and how that's based in philosophy and how we view things and the lenses we have on. Like all of that's really helpful to do. But within the text here that James is talking about, that has nothing to do with what James is talking about. James is writing to Jewish Christians that are dispersed, that are facing persecution from not only the government, but they're also they're being kicked out of the synagogues. They're losing friends, family, job opportunities. And in that, James says that these trials and tribulations will actually produce steadfastness in you. And you may not know how, and it's because you don't know how it's going to happen. You need to ask God for wisdom and he'll give it to you. So whether you're rich or you're poor in this situation, it doesn't matter because your your steadfastness is what you, your, your pursuit of Jesus is what you can have your hope in. So if you're poor, you, you can point to Jesus. And if you're rich, you can say, this is all going away, but I have Jesus, right? You're, you're steadfast through the trials. So that has nothing to do with what Mark's talked about up to this point. Is it helpful information and in saying, oh, how do I view the world? How was I, how did I grow up? How did James grow up? Like what's Marxism? How do I view things politically? Like these are all helpful things, I suppose, but they have nothing to do with what James is actually talking about. And they have very little to do in, in regards to helping us actually process through what James is saying. Like if we were, to, if we were unpacking something that actually helped us see James better, this would be beneficial right now. It's really not. It seems to be, um, really just building up the foundation to be like, Oh no. Like as far as our political viewpoints or how we grew up or how we see things, it's, it seems to be very, just reinforcing that rather than tearing that down and saying, yeah, those lenses aren't helpful in regards to what James is saying. Um, unless I'm hearing something different than what he's saying, but that's what I'm seeing so far. Um, so he's going to go into more of this, but I just wanted to stop like to point that out. Like we haven't visited the scriptures for a while. So we at least need to go back 
Because what happens often is that pastors will do what he's doing right now. They'll tell stories. They'll tell anecdotes. They'll, they'll bring in some things that are very informational, but they don't have anything to do with the scripture. But because we're listening and we're very intrigued and they've hooked us, um, we, we forget that like we're not in the scriptures anymore. Like we've been let off by the Pied Piper over here into the forest and we didn't even know that happened because it was so intriguing and so interesting and so uh, so informational that we just followed along and now we're not even there anymore. So there you go. Let's get back to it. This ruling and reigning in heaven comes down to the earth. Now he's he's very poor. He dies and rises, goes back today, right now, today, Jesus is rich. He's loaded. When we get there, he pays for everything. He takes care of everyone. It says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Jesus, though he was rich, for our sake, he became poor. The point is this, God doesn't care as much if you're rich or poor, he does care much if you're godly or ungodly. So what happens in our culture, we just look at your income, God looks at your character. Man looks at the outside, God looks at the heart. And so when you're looking at your life, you're going through your trials. There's anxiety in your mind. You're under pressure to make some of your worst financial decisions. And it's character that is going to cause you to navigate those decisions. And what we're seeing right now is under trials and pressure, people are making some extraordinarily foolish financial decisions. They're going into massive debt. They are consuming products and goods and services that they simply cannot afford. They're taking risks with their investment portfolio that are not wise. They're cashing in their equity because the housing market bumped. They're pulling it all out for luxury goods and not realizing that there will be a leveling and a resettling in the housing market. Here, what James is talking about is not just what used to happen, but what always happens. Amen. That is that under a trial, with anxiety, people start to make very foolish decisions about their finances, wealth, and spending. And when it comes to our finances, oftentimes our trials are about our finances. All right, so let's just stop right there. Is that what he's saying? Is that what James is saying? Because That's the question we have to ask, because what Mark has done is he's brought it all back to finances at this point, and he's drawing primarily on a section of text about um, let the poor be exalt, exalted in his humiliation and the rich in, well, hold on, I don't wanna get it wrong here, but because this is important. So he says, here we go. Nine, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Is James talking about riches and finances here based upon decisions being made under trials and tribulation? It doesn't, it, look, I am not the best biblical exegete in the world, admittedly, okay? Not the best preacher in the world, admittedly. You can go view my other sermons, right? I'm not saying that I'm the, the I'm on this pedestal looking down, grading everyone. But what I am saying is that when you read this text, that's not what's happening here. So we have to ask the question whenever Mark makes this statement then, okay, is he doing so rightly? Like, is this, is that a, the right way to exegete the text? Is this what James is saying primarily? That's the question we're asking. Is that really what James is saying? And if it's not, 
then why are we making an entire point about it at this at this juncture? So let's see. What's the, what's the goal here? What what's Mark's goal of bringing finances into this? And even if our trial is not about our finances, I lost my job, downsized. Um, your trial includes your finances. We had money saved and then I got in a car wreck and now we've got legal bills and medical bills and it's drained us out. Oftentimes our trials are about our wealth and possessions or they involve our wealth and possessions. And the result is that we have a lot of impulse spending where people are just making that dopamine hit and not thinking through the consequence of what they have and what it's going to cost them ultimately and eventually. In addition to your stuff, so let me, let me, so let me say this, don't raise your hand. How many of you in a trial, your first thought is, I need to get more stuff. I need to spend some money. I need to have some comfort. I need to have some pleasure. I need to have some relief. I need to have some diversion. I need to have some distraction. And for others, when they're in a trial, their instinct is not to find joy in their stuff, but to find joy in their sin. When there's more pressure out there, more anxiety in here, there's more temptation for, for sin. That's where he's gonna go. Joy ain't found in your sin. James 1, 12 through 15, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, meaning persevering, enduring, going, not quitting or surrendering to the sin. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, let no one say when he is tempted. It doesn't say if you're tempted, it says when you're tempted. We're all gonna be tempted to sin. Don't say I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. God's good, not evil. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. He's talking there about the internal. He's talking about your brain and your body. There are things in you that long for things that harm you. Then desire, when it is fully conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Brings forth death. So what he's saying is this, when you're under pressure, when you're in a trial, your brain has a lot of anxiety and it's trying to process information and make decisions and keep you safe and control the future and, and protect everyone and everything that you hold dear. There is something in you that is now more vulnerable to sinful temptation. Let me just say this, friends. We saw this this last year. We're still seeing it. Under pressure, people are drinking more. People are eating more. People are spending more. People are online more. People are shopping more. People are more angry. People are having more mental health. People are making more short-sighted decisions. More people are suicidal. The vice is squeezing. And as a result, the flesh is responding. And what he says is, when those temptations come, and they will come, we all have them. Now, before he gets too far into this, I do want to note that it is possible, and we're going to see this here, for maybe as you listen to pastors, and this is why this is why it's important to be able to discern um, and take notes and like look at them later, that it is possible for a pastor to to get one of the pieces of the text wrong, and then this the next part do a pretty good job at exegetically working through it. And this is what we're about to see. I don't know if we're going to get all the way through it because we're, we're we're about twenty minutes away from finishing up the sermon review, so hopefully we can get that far. But what he's about to go into as far as temptation and the examples he uses to actually bring out the scripture, right, are very helpful. So 
as much as we can, like let's keep in mind what he just did with the uh, the 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 poor and the rich, and how I would argue. I don't think you can show me, but maybe you can if you want to DM me or in the comment section. I don't think he did a. I think he did a very poor job exegetically pulling out what that that part of scripture was saying in James. But here in the second one, let's hold those two up and say, okay, how does he unpack this one then, as far as temptation? And uh, the, the examples that James uses here, and does he do that well? And I want to hold these two up because it is possible to butcher one and do the other one well. And that's why as, as somebody that's listening to pastors, we need to be able to distinguish both. Because we can't just be like, well, he was bad on this point, so throw the whole thing away. And we can't say, well, he was right on this point, so we'll give him grace on the other one. Like, there, there, there's a way that James wrote this that James intended it to be read. And we can get a lot of that intent. Look, we're never going to be able to get rid of all the lenses, but we can get rid of a lot of them just through understanding the historical context that James is writing in and say, okay, well, how did he mean this then? So let's hold up what he just said about, you know, um, the rich and the poor. And then let's hold that up as far as how he kind of exegetically worked through that. And then we'll look at this one and say, okay, well, how does he do this as far as the, this section of scripture 12 through 15 that he just read? You're taking a test that you're either going to pass or fail. If you pass the test, you're steadfast. He told us previously, if you fail the test and sin, you're unstable. Now, the good news is this. We've all failed our test and God is gracious. We get to retake our test. But what happens when we fail our test is we surrender to the sin. We reach the point where it's like, the trial is so great, the anxiety is so high, I just need to hit the dopamine center, I just need to feel good for a minute, I need to do, that's where we get in trouble. And then what we do, he says, we blame God. Now, let me say there are various ways to do this, but you'll hear people do this all the time. Well, you know, Life is hard, I'm in a hard season, and I just, I feel like, you know, God kinda didn't come through. So I have a right to do some things that he says no to, that I wanna do, because he didn't do what he was supposed to do. You'll hear people say, well, like, if they wouldn't have said that, I wouldn't have said that. If they wouldn't have done that, I wouldn't have done that. Yeah, that was my response. But look at the external pressure I was under that excuses the behavior I've chosen. And then we can even blame God. God. This happens all the way back in Genesis 3. So there's two people on earth, Adam and Eve. Adam's supposed to be the leader. His wife is supposed to be the co-leader. God tells him, okay, you guys get along, eat anything you want. Don't touch the, you know, don't eat that tree. I'll be back in a little bit. God leaves. Serpent, Satan, dragon shows up. They're eating. Everything blows up. The earth is ruined. God shows up, asks for Adam, where are you? Because the man's the leader, he's the head. And immediately what does Adam do? He blame shifts. He's like, oh, so glad you came. This chick is crazy, all right? <laughs> this chick is crazy right here. <laughs> this is the go-to line for every husband's sense. Hey, God, I was thinking about it. You made her. Oh, you got a defective product here. And you were, you were gone. I don't know, like I was on my own. I thought you were supposed to help. And then some dragon showed up. You probably made the dragon and the woman. I'm the victim. I forgive you. You guys figure it out. Get me a new woman who could slay a dragon. So he's just, he's out. He's, he's blaming God. Well, then what happens is Eve, she's going to blame Satan. And the point is, everybody's going to blame somebody. And only those who love God are steadfast, own their own responsibility for their own decision-making. And if you're looking at your external circumstances saying, well, let me give you my... 
Now, I just want to interject really, really fast here. Keep in mind what was just said, because I want to take the last five minutes of this video, which we're not there yet, but when we get there, I want to take the last five minutes of this video and take what he just said into consideration as we talk about not necessarily this sermon in particular, the sermon review, but when, like I said at the beginning of the video, we're going to look at Mark Driscoll just specifically as the person, Mark Driscoll. Um, but keep in mind what he just said there and keep that kind of in the back of your mind. So when we get to the last five minutes, we're definitely going to talk about that. The reason what happens out there does not determine the response in here, you do. They're responsible for what's happening out there, but we're responsible for how we're responding in here. And the lie is always this, God is not that good and sin is not that bad. God is not that good and sin is not that bad. And here's the truth, sin does two things, it defies God and it damages us. So you're like, why do I gotta do what God says? Because he loves you and he's trying to save you from yourself. Right? Any good parent makes rules not to constrict the freedom of their child, but to preserve the life of their child. Like I, I, I make some rules because I love you. And if you disobey the rules, you're gonna hurt yourself. God is a father, we are his kids. Sin doesn't just defy him, it damages you. No one under a trial with anxiety who has chosen sin made their situation better. We've all done this, right? You're like, yeah, I felt the pressure of the trial. I was under anxiety. I needed a quick dopamine hit to feel a little better. So I made a short-term sinful decision for some sort of pleasure of rebellion. And momentarily I got some physiological relief, but then the Holy Spirit showed up and convicted me. And that's not who I was made to be. And it was very disappointing and it didn't make my life any better. And people are making these kinds of decisions over and over and over. And once you get into a habit, you're now creating a neurofeedback loop in the brain to where every time that's your natural default unless you intentionally start a new process. Okay, when I'm processing anxiety, I'm gonna turn off my phone, I'm gonna turn on my soul, I'm gonna meet with the Lord. I'm going to not just sit in my house all day, I'm gonna go get some fresh air, get in God's creation, have a conversation with him, invite the Holy Spirit to give me wisdom, do the James 1.5, ask for help. Rather than picking up the bottle, I'm going to pick up the Bible. Rather than watching porn, I'm going to go to a life group. Like I am gonna start some new habits and patterns because there's a triggering in me that leads to self-destruction and I've gotta get out of that loop. What's amazing is what James is encouraging, and Paul uses the language of put off and put on, now the brain scientists will say, is creating new feedback loops, it's creating new neural pathways, it's literally the renewing of your mind. And this is possible for the children of God with the Spirit of God. And so how do you pass your test? And we've all got our test, and that is the temptation test. The trial is out there, the temptation test is in here. All right, so we're going to stop at minute mark, 43 minutes and 17 seconds, and wrap this kind of sermon up. What we've seen here up to this point is, I, I think he's turning it in the entire sermon part of it as far as like, I think we started off really rough. If you watch part one, you know that I think it started off pretty rough. Um, I don't think he did a good job at all as far as exegeting the text here uh, about the, the poor and the rich. I do think this sermon's taking a turn here that if you actually are to watch the rest of the sermon, you're going to see that I, I think the rest of it here on out is pretty good. 
I would encourage you, like I already said, to go and listen to the rest of the example that he talks about here with 12 and 15. I think he does a great job of talking about the temptation and sin and temptation not being sin, but leading to sin and all of the things there that are used as examples. I think those are really good. But the sermon itself, I think, is a lot of fluff, a lot of information dumping. I think that in general, Mark um, has a lot of the same things going for him that a lot of other pastors have, which is like they're really good at communicating. They're really good at telling stories. And because of that, the congregation gets super distracted and aren't actually being fed much deep, deep theology from the Bible. We're not learning a ton because there's just so much fluff there that's connected to the sermon. Um, so the sermon itself, I think, is about par with most sermons that we look at, which just means it's not that great. We didn't learn a whole lot from the Bible. We learned a lot of information and um, things that may be helpful but aren't necessarily rooted in Scripture. Um, and altogether, it was like it was all right. Like I said, I think the second half, which unfortunately we didn't, have, we don't have time to get to. I think the second half is a whole lot better, um, but it takes us. 30 40 minutes to get that far in to get to the good stuff where he actually starts digging pretty deep into the scripture and starts exegeting in such a way that it's helpful now that's the sermon review i do want to touch on mark here for a minute because um sort of as a way to kind of get into the person of mark driscoll I think for people my age that are 37 around my age that were affected by Mark Driscoll's content, both his sermon and his books and the whole restless reform movement. Um, that's why I think that the podcast, the rise and fall of Mark Hill is so popular because there were so many of us at that time that really latched on to Mark Driscoll and what he was doing and his way of preaching and uh, just how, how it was so different from everything else that when Mars Hill fell apart, like everybody's like, Oh no, what happened? Now, this is where I wanted you to take out in the back of your head, like what I talked about earlier, as far as um, what he said about, I mean, he recognizes that under stress and anxiety, we do things and we, we talk about things and we react to ways that we shouldn't under stress and things like that. Now, we didn't get that far in the sermon, but he actually does later on acknowledge that he, I think the way he words it is that he's been through trials himself. Um he doesn't say it in such a way that I, re he doesn't say I reacted wrongly to the trials. He just says, I've been through them as well, which I think is interesting. One of the things that's odd to me about Mark Driscoll, the person, is that he seems to be able to recognize scripturally, like how we shouldn't react and how we should react, but hasn't at least publicly shown how that's applied to his own life in regards to apologizing to people in regards to saying, Hey, I didn't react the best way in that situation. Um, again, does he need to do it publicly? I would say he absolutely does not need to do it publicly. Um, but does he at least need to go to people that he hurt and, you know, basically walk through what he just walked through here, which is like, look, I was under anxiety. I was under pressure. It's not an excuse, but I understand how, and why I reacted the way I did because I was, you know, I wasn't being steadfast. I wasn't doing the things the Bible instructs me to do. And I, I am sorry and I'm asking for your forgiveness. As far as I know, as far as the articles, um, the things that uh, people that were at Mars Hill have put out, like he's not done any of that, which is interesting that he recognizes that it's a thing. He clearly does because he's exegeting the passage and reading it from scripture. So he understands it's a thing you should do. But he hasn't actually applied it to his own life, which then brings me to my next point when we're looking at Mark Driscoll and then pastors in general.
is the ability to teach the only qualification of a pastor? And, and it's not. It's <laughs> a trick question. It's not the only qualification of a pastor. Now, most of the time, it is the qualification that we focus on the most when we're looking at pastors is do they have the ability to teach? Do they hold a sound doctrine, right? It's my whole beef with Stephen Furtick. Like he, I think he probably meets most of the other qualifications. Like, I mean, there's some others that you could question and we're not going to get into those. But by and large, you know, as using Stephen Furtick as an example, I think that he probably meets most of the other qualifications um, of a pastor but he doesn't meet the teaching and holding to sound doctrine one. Whereas maybe Mark Driscoll holds to the teaching and sound doctrine one, but doesn't hold to the other qualifications. This is why when we look at pastors and Mark Driscoll, I think is a great way to start this conversation. We have to acknowledge that being able to teach and holding to sound doctrine isn't the only qualification for being a pastor. And people go, well, yeah, but all of like, do you know anybody that meets those qualifications? I know a handful of guys that meet those qualifications and they are pastors. But I think this is why we have too many pastors because we've lowered the bar so low that almost anyone can be like, well, he's a pastor. She's a pastor. They preach us, like, but they don't meet the qualifications. Why do you think that scripture in at, at least three places blatantly gives us qualifications for a pastor because it's it's important that those that lead the lord's church have those qualifications because if not they can tarnish the name of christ lead people astray and create all kinds of messes that are unnecessary because they they fall outside of these qualifications so when we're looking at driscoll specifically right rise and fall of marcel podcast all of the things that happen like he's he's good at preaching he knows doctrine by and large and this this sermon sort of like not a great example clearly but it by and large he knows how to exegete the text well but that's not the only qualification for a pastor we have to recognize that even especially like right when we're doing these sermon reviews the main focus of these sermon reviews is do they handle the text correctly because that's the primary role that you're going to see a pastor in is preaching and teaching but let's not get distracted that that's not the only qualification of a leader, right? This is also why I don't want to get bogged down in methodology like I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon because sometimes the methodology is going to be different than what we want. Like it's not going to be a three-point sermon or it's not going to look the way we want it to look. The point is, are they able to teach scripture or do they hold a doctrine, right? That's the idea. If they do that, then that qualification is met. But there's other qualifications, right? Hospitality, temperament. Uh, use of money, uh, faithfulness to their wives, like, right? There's, there's other qualifications and we need to hold those in tandem with the rest of them um, to say, is this, is this man qualified to, to be a pastor? So anyway, that, that's what I want to leave you with here. Like, do, is Mark Driscoll qualified to be a pastor, right? If I'm backed into a corner, I'm going to say no, just based on the information I have, but I'm not close to the situation, so I don't know. But given the information I have, I would say that he probably shouldn't be leading a church right now, regardless of how good of a teacher he is, because there's other information out there that seems to indicate that he doesn't meet the other qualifications. My opinion on that, though, is worth nothing because I'm not actually in the situation, right? If you're in the situation, if you're around him, if you're part of the leadership of this church, right, then you can speak into that. But if you're not, then it's just an opinion, right? 
just like you can't speak into my local church because you have no clue what's going on there. But if you are there, then you have the ability to speak into it. So hopefully the sermon review is helpful in regards to showing that a lot of this is just fluff. I do think he turns it around a little bit in the second half. You can watch that again in the link below. But I think the important part, especially in this end to focus on is like, there are more qualifications than simply being able to exegete scripture correctly. And we need to pay attention to those and we need to hold those up high as well. Because just because someone can communicate and just because someone can exegete scripture well does not mean they're qualified to lead the church. So hopefully this was helpful. Tell me what you think below. Uh, your thoughts on Mark Driscoll, your thoughts on uh, pastoral qualifications, those sorts of things are all very interesting to me. And uh, hopefully the sermon review along with the other ones were helpful as well. Uh, if they were, make sure you comment, you like, you share, you support, all of the things that you need to know about. Links in the description below. Hopefully this was helpful. I'll talk to you next week.